Today's episode of Growing Pains with David Campbell on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by the It's the Economy Stupid blog. That's David's blog. It's a blog about economic development in Atlantic Canada. He recently put out a Thanksgiving edition on the 12th of this month called The Rational Optimist. It's a Matt Ridley reference. You can get the blog on davidwcampbell.com. On the 19th, that's Monday, we're releasing the Transformational Leadership first episode. We're really excited. This is a collaboration with the Chapman Group. It's hosted by Tanya Chapman, an HR expert in the region. We're talking about disruption, how to unlock leaders, how to transform teams. We're really excited about this podcast coming to you live with episode one on the 19th. We've also wrapped up the Essential Talent Podcast. That was a podcast collaboration with the University of New Brunswick's MBA program. We heard from over 20 MBA graduates about what they think about COVID-19, the skills they're bringing to our regional workforce, and their ambition as they come to graduate. It was the first podcast that we released in the format we're calling a pod pitch. It's fascinating to hear someone talk about their experience in their own words. We loved doing it with these MBA graduates from all over the world with their diverse opinions, experience, and talents. We encourage all of you to check out Tech Talks with Kathy Simpson. We're all wondering what the technology landscape looks like post-pandemic. During the pandemic, we want to know what's on offer for students who are coming in to the technology field in the region. And Kathy Simpson, the CEO of Tech Impact, does a great job at hosting that podcast. You'll find it on all major podcast platforms. Let's get to the show. Welcome, listeners, to another edition of the Growing Pains podcast, the only podcast dedicated to economic development in Atlantic Canada. It is October 14th, 2020, and my guest today is Larry Shaw, CEO of Ignite Fredericton. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, David. Pleasure to be here. So, Larry, we usually start these things by asking you or our guests to talk a little bit about their personal story and, and, and allow the listeners to understand how you got started in your career and how you ended up where you are today. So why don't you just give us a little bit of your own personal background? Sure. I'd be glad to. Uh, and you know, when I, when I think about my, my career, I, I've had the great fortune to sort of, I think maybe have three or four careers um, in the span of what would we would describe as one career. Um, you know, I mean, I growing up on a farm in, in rural New Brunswick, you learn a lot of basic lessons uh, that play all the way through your life into your career. And then, and certainly after that, um, you know, my, in some of my earliest days doing farm work with McCain Foods and things like that, you know, hard work is, is never really hurt anyone. anyone. So, um, you know, those characteristics, I think, have followed me through my, my career in terms of, you know, um, treat people the way you would want to be treated, um, you know, uh, the value of a dollar, 
um, you know, what what does it mean to, um, you know, represent yourself with um, with respect and dignity and and look for look look within, you know, people, um, you know, at attributes that are that are positive instead of trying to look at things that maybe are negative. So I guess it summarizes a bit of a glass half full sort of scenario. But in my in my my professional career, um, I started with with uh, NBTEL. Um, as everyone know, that transitioned into a line. But I think um, a lot of the things that I carry into my career today um, was an NBTEL attribute. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of the things that we we went through in the NBTEL days really set the stage. Maybe a number of years earlier than than maybe other organizations actually realized it. But going way back into the Ken Cox days, we started productivity conversations. Um, you know, so so NBTEL was preparing itself for competition four, five, six years before it ever happened. Um, so the insights that I think we brought into the competition when it started was a bit different than other telecommunications. So again, those are all just basic experiences that we that we were very fortunate in, in, in BTEL that we all took into, into a line. But if I was to look and sort of try to summarize some of that career, you know, we, we lived through the digital transformation era. You know, in, in some of my earlier jobs at Emitel, I actually worked on crossbar switches and step-by-step -step switches, old telecommunication technology, but it was really hands-on technology. There was very little computerization at that time. Now, I may be aging myself, but nonetheless, that's, that is the, the span of my career. So Emitel was the first uh, organization in North America to actually start that digital transformation. And at one point in time, there's a significant um, I'll call it tourism related to NBTEL. There was a lot of companies, a lot of countries coming to New Brunswick to try to find out what was being done differently. Um, you know, and again, so these things all began to build on themselves. So, so we had a digital transformation. We were early at getting prepared for competition. Um, you know, that, that was not a bad word. Uh, we actually saw that it was going to drive change and it was going to drive innovation into organizations. And the whole cycle of productivity programs and things of, of the 80s, um, we lived all through that as as NBTEL employees. You know, then then we we were we sort of lived through an era, or a, you know, sometimes some of those productivity uh, programs described as uh, sensational emotional events. So you really can't can't make long lasting change until you have something that is emotionally, whether it's emotionally uh, within a culture or you as an individual, until you have an emotional event that starts to drive change. Well, we we had a number of those with inside NBTEL. Um, as you know, we we launched the internet, the internet service. Uh, you know, uh, when I started my career, cellular phones were not there. So, and and look at what it's doing today in terms of 5G networks and the ability for us to completely work in a very different way. Um, you know, we we launched the broadband network and and you know the capacity of of data and remote working capabilities. All those things, New Brunswick was first in, and, and it was a lot due to uh, due to NBTEL. And and some of that came through in things like the Living Lab. I mean, that's used in a in a wide array of descriptions today. But the Living Lab started from you know the the area of NBTEL and actually trying to put fiber into homes. You know, ten years before that was a, a common place to to do that. So my career spanned that era, and I think there was there's four or five takeaways that that came from NBTEL that I've used throughout my career. The one is is competitive nature, right? Um, com competition is not bad. It actually keeps us sharp. It helps improve us as individuals and corporations. And from that, there's a whole lot of positive outcomes, productivity, customer service, things like that. I think the other thing that, that I took from my early days at Enmetel is this, this sense of collaboration, you know, sort of 
one plus one does equal three. You know, the the sum of the of the parts are greater than individually any one would would be. And of course, the innovation. I don't I don't think you could speak about NBTEL uh, and those of us in, uh, that are in careers today that doesn't talk about you know the uh, the innovation element and and that that plays through almost every day in the work that I do with with Ignite today. Um, people would have been would have been a, a component uh, NBTEL as much as any other organizations, not really much without its people. But I think translating the energy of the people into a corporate culture, um, one that, you know, sort of has leadership at its at its prime, that's a different way of looking looking at it than just simply your people are are your assets and you try to try to make as much as you can from those assets. Those are hardcore sort of business related focus. But when you when you turn it into a corporate culture, and then you translate that into leadership. I think that's when you start to really get, you know, productivity out of people, and you start to get ingenuity. You start to get, a, a, you know, a different a different outcome uh, of work. So that's a, a long-winded answer of where my career has expanded. But um, I, you know, there's a lot of I owe I, I owe a lot to the early years with NBTEL, and of course, since then, you know, I've had almost 20 years since I've left a I left a line now. Um, I was a great fortune to join a firm and took me into the States, worked there for, for a period of time in the contact center industry. And that led me into Central America. I was in Central America for a number of years. Uh, we started up organization in Guatemala, partnered with companies there in, in Guatemala, and we expanded into nine different countries when we were done. Um, you know, we were approaching, I think that when I left the organization, um, we were around 4,000 people, again, in the contact center space, technology, sport, things like that. Um, and then, and then there, I, I jumped industries entirely. I went to the e-learning side of of things. Some of that was exposed through the early day of, of training in contact centers and, and things like that. But I joined a firm out of out of, uh, out of Ireland and went to Ireland for a period of time and worked with a company called Pulse Learning at that time. Um, and we were taking some of the early e-learning programs into customers like uh, the Bank of America, as an example. And then from there, I came back. Uh, always been in New Brunswick. Always will be in New Brunswicker. Even though I've lived and been around the world, I've always kept my tax base here and and then did my duty and paid for the great great taxes that we are all exposed here in, in New Brunswick. Um, come back into New Brunswick, um, did some work with Ross Ventures here, and then joined uh, Knowledge Park and uh, Ignite Friend for now almost ten years. Okay, almost ten years. So I didn't know you had that circuitous career right through Central America. That's very interesting in Ireland. I've probably know I've known you at least since you were uh, at Ignite Fredericton, but I didn't know your career uh, previous to that. It's very, very interesting. Interesting tie into e-learning. Of course, New Brunswick had a bit of an e-learning cluster in the early days. And of course, in the early 2000s, that kind of uh, went bust. But one of the firms that survived that whole um, uh, fallout was Skillsoft. And of course, Skillsoft is still in Fredericton today and still has over 200 employees in uh, Knowledge Park. So I just read yesterday that they are merging with another firm. They are acquiring another major player called Global Knowledge. They are continuing to keep the Skillsoft brand and they will be traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And this new capital supposedly is going to position them for growth. Now, uh, I wanted to ask you about this specifically because sometimes these tie-ups are a concern in the sense that the new management in New York or wherever will say, okay, let's start cutting our peripheral organizations or, 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 or places like Fredericton. But on the other hand, it could be a great opportunity for growth. If they're going to grow, if they're going to try to build their footprint, why not expand 
in Fredericton. So what are your thoughts? Does the Skillsoft announcement yesterday pose opportunity for Fredericton? Or are you worried that it might be the death knell of the e-learning sector? Well, look, I, I think it's a it's it's actually great news. And you're right. I mean, some of these things can go different directions. And anytime they go in a direction that maybe isn't positive for us, I think it's also our fault because we haven't been able to get in front of the right people and tell the right story. Because, you know, any merger acquisition, you'd want to, you know, some of the outcomes of that is you, you consolidate operations in companies, you know, you do away with marketing departments because you already have one and things like that. And, and, and every organization should do that. But once that sort of settles out, I think then you get the opportunity to look at your cost centers and your operational centers and figure out where's the, where's the most opportune place to do business. And, and that's where I think we win in almost every case. Um, and it's therefore our responsibility in front of these mergers, these new companies, new entities to tell our story. So I see every one of those as, quite frankly, an opportunity. You know, we've saw it many times before with Salesforce.com purchasing Radiant 6 and IBM purchasing Cuban Labs. As long as you're dealing with the right players and you've got the right story to bring forward, I think these are all positives. And in this particular one, we're, I'm quite excited because the e-learning business is not by, by any way, shape or form dead. It's, it's transforming in the same way that every industry has transformed over the last number of years. Um, Skillsoft has a, has a deep history. I mean, back in my e-learning days, Skillsoft was a partner that we worked in, in years ago in, in creating some of that early, you know, what used to be called CBD training, computer-based uh, technology training, um, you know, before even e-learning was, was a word, right, before it started to be descriptive. So, so Skillsoft has always been a leader in that space. And now I think, you know, with the ability to for cash injection, investment injection, capital, I think they can they can you know look at further expansion and figure out how can how can you transition in this world. And you know, COVID has created a significant opportunity. I mean, we look, COVID in itself is is terrible, and a lot of people and companies have you know really been impacted. But it's also created this new opportunity. And I think our job as economic development leaders is to figure out how do we take advantage of that. This, this Skillsoft, I think, is one of those examples. Consolidation in the, net, in the, in the network. People are buying companies and, and rationalizing them. Uh, and then I think the, they're, they're going to come out the other side of that in a, bit, a, a better competitive position. So um, the insertion of capital, uh, all of those things will play through for Skillsoft. And, um, you know, my job is to work with OMB and get in front of the right people in Skillsoft to make sure they understand. Um, and I actually see that there will be an opportunity for expansion with Skillsoft here in Freddie. Uh, the tenure that they've had here, I think, speaks to the success that they found in not only just New Brunswick and Freddie, but Canada in general. So the next step is you and O&B hustling them and trying to get them to ex take a close look at expanding in Fredericton. Absolutely. So it was one of the top items that as soon as it was announced, I've been starting to put out the calls into, into the, our, our partners at O&B and hopefully um, we can get in front of the right players. I mean, look, we're not going to be on top of their list, but they've got to go through some work to rationalize what they're doing. Uh, but once that's done, we want to be sort of some of the early people in, in the door talking about the attributes here in Fredericton. And look, I think, I think there's a better than 50-50 chance to have an expansion. Super. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit of Ignite Fredericton itself. It's not a traditional economic <laughs> development organization. You've got real estate pieces, you've got business incubation pieces, you do a lot of work with immigration. So why don't you give the listeners a two-minute thumbnail sketch of what exactly you're up to at Ignite Fredericton? 
Well, look, I'll try. I'm not sure I've ever kept to a two-minute timeline on anything. Um, there, there's a lot involved with Ignite and a lot that, uh, you know, again, our fault. We haven't made it. You know, we don't spend a lot of time telling everybody what we do. We just jump in and roll up our sleeves and get things done. But, um, Ignite, you know, maybe to digress for one second. So I'm also the president of the Association of University Research Parks. I represent about 400 research parks around the world uh, set on that board nationally. And the reason why I mention that is, we often say within research parks, you've seen one, you've actually seen just one because they are all different. Every There's a there's a component in almost every one that's different. And I would say that in general, economic development is the same way. In our case, we've, we've you know, there's there's a model where you go to the marketplace and you ask for money and you, you have private investment and things like that, <clears throat> excuse me. And then there's the model where it's just self it's funded. Uh, ours, we, we've got, you know, it's sort of self-funded to some extent. Now, look, we have we have input and major input from the city of Fredericton and the, and the town of Oromocto and the community of, of um, and the village of New Maryland, hopefully soon to have Hanwell in our fold, uh, because it's really a regional conversation that you have to for economic development. So the more of those we can bring into into that into into focus, then the better. So Ignite has is the single share owner of Knowledge Park. So Ignite is the economic development arm. It really is about helping companies grow, um, establish here, so an investment attraction and things like that. But people workforce development is also part of what Ignite Fredericton does, and so the immigration agenda, uh, repatriation, retention, things like that for for workforce development. Knowledge Park is is a is a for-profit private company owned by Ignite, but its mandate is economic development. Its mandate is to make strategic investments in infrastructure that, that is the foundation for economic development in a lot of cases. So that clustering strategy, Knowledge Park began in 1998, and I think currently we're, you know, somewhere around 150 or so million dollars of GDP impact on an annual basis from, from Knowledge Park. So I think it's proven itself as an economic development engine. One of the investments that Knowledge Park made is also Planet Hatch, and that's the third brand that we have. And Planet Hatch is really about startups and 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 helping entrepreneurs grow. Um, and and the results of of Planet Hatch is new startups and jobs associated with that. And look, we we all sort of measure things like investment and follow-on investments and VC investments and things like that. And um, but generally, our focus is on the entrepreneur, helping them grow and launch their business, and then and then job creation from that. So um, I'm going to come back to COVID-19 in a minute and ask you how that's impacting your business at Ignite. But I wanted to pivot into cybersecurity. I had the opportunity uh, recently to work with the Cracker Jack team at Stiletto Consulting on a cybersecurity report for you folks uh, at Ignite. And, and I guess at some point you'll probably release some of those results. But I was quite impressed by the size of the sector now and by the potential that we see for that sector in the future. So I guess one of the things I think our listeners would like to know is why cybersecurity? I think people intuitively understand why we're good at forest products. We've got lots of trees, got a few major players. I think they understand why we're good at fish. We have lots of fish, lots of history, lots of expertise. I think they understand why we've gotten good at, I don't know, blueberries, mm -hmm. but why why cybersecurity of all things? What what is the value proposition, or or why do you think Fredericton and New Brunswick has an expertise that can be leveraged into growing a cybersecurity cluster based out of Fredericton? 
So to understand cybersecurity um, is also a bit to understand some history of where we've been and how things have evolved and sort of to recognize the attributes that are resident within side cybersecurity that have been similar or are similar to other success stories we've had. So let's take the contact center, one, one I'm intimately involved in, and I know you were as, as well. So the contact center, you know, as it evolved, it it drove a lot of innovation. It drove you know, I would argue for those people that sort of look at contact center and say, well, you know, it's a low end skill sets, you know, low wages and all those things. That's maybe true to some extent on certain aspects. But what the contact center did, it gave us the first in mass demand on knowledge, technology, you know, network management, all of those things. And it's that part that was the most important part of, of the of what I would argue of the contact center because it's actually created the knowledge industry that we have today. It was the foundation that started all that back, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Then you have jurisdictions like Fredericton who made significant investment over a long period of time through technology. At one point in time, Fredericton would have had its own technology company, Innovations, um, and we exploit, exploited that and built that into value proposition for companies to come here. At one point in time, we would have and the lowest internet uh, service provider, lowest data connectivity service provider, probably in Canada because of that structure. Um, you know, we were able to, you know, help companies in a very different way on on some of their operating expenses. So when you when you look at those pieces, they've all sort of moved together. They've all been orchestrated in a way that we translated those into opportunities for economic development. And that's, you know, if you look back in their radiant six days when they created, you know, their their run. Um, or when you know Q1 Labs at a university uh, was stood up um, in in the early days of cybersecurity, it all built upon this this the access to knowledge. It all built upon an element of expertise that we would have. In this case, cybersecurity, we have that we've had you know Canada's first research chair is here in Fredericton. Canada's first research institute is here in Fredericton. Canada's largest exit in the cyberspace is here in Fredericton. When you look at those foundational items, along with the characteristics that I've described that we followed through living lab environment, you know, a Petri dish for, for, for development, the success we've had in smart energy, the success, the success we've had in the contact industry, all of those things are the same characteristics that we're trying to exploit in cybersecurity. So now when you jump from the, put my economic development hat on and say, we've got a whole lot of things that we can focus on in the world, what are some of those ones that we should focus on that we think we have the chance to hit hit a home run on? So you do this self-analysis and say, okay, what's the attributes and what's the strengths that we have? Cyber kept coming to the top of the list every time I did that. Over the last four or five years, doing economic development, business plans, et cetera, for the region, cyber kept screaming at us. So four years ago, we started, we collectively started a process with UMB and took it into OMB to say, look, you know, the David Burns and myself would have said in, in you know, OMB way back before, you know, before what it is today in terms of OMB back into INB days and, and said, look, we think there's an opportunity to focus on this from, a, from an investment attraction perspective. And from that, it's just started to continue to grow. You know, uh, IBM has added jobs. We've had startup companies here. You know, you've got Sonray and you've got Berseron Security, Patriot One. A lot of, you know, the companies have, have started to so that cluster is now starting to, to be realized. So when you look at that and then you say from an economic development perspective, well, depending on which report you want to look at, there's anywhere from two to four million job shortages by the end of 2021. The industry is changing so rapidly that some of those jobs that we know we need to have, we don't even have titles for them yet, right? That's how fast the industry is changing. 
And then, and then you always look for something that can diversify you across as many sectors as you as you can, because that that will protect your economic development base. Cybersecurity, I, I would challenge anybody to name one organization, one nation, one continent, whatever way you want to look at it, that has not been impacted by cybersecurity. Setting at about 39 attacks per second worldwide, right? A trajectory of growth that it has, and it's across every one of those sectors. What a what a what a wonderful opportunity we have now to uh, is to to work in a way that we did in the contact center era, bring all of the attributes together in one initiative, move that forward with thought leadership and all of the value propositions I just talked about. It was no brainer to put cybersecurity at the top. Um, you know, yeah, I think yeah, we're yeah. about seven hundred and fifty jobs now with uh, with cybersecurity in place already. Impressive. Um... I think one of the other factors you touched on is the getting in at the right time. So with the contact center industry, and I don't want to age both you and me, but that was actually 30 years ago in around 1990. I think the first call center that McKenna attracted was Federal Express yep. in 89. So it's actually 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but, but yeah, but I mean, that was a real time of explosive growth in that sector. It was with the launch of the 1-800 numbers with the, you know, the, just this movement into telecommunications-based customer interaction. And, and we grabbed, we were at the front end of that in, in New Brunswick, of course, led by NBTEL. So I think, I think similarly, we're kind of at the front end of cyber. I think you, you illustrated that with your estimate of the job growth. But I think the other thing I'd, I'd ask you about, though, is what are we actually talking about? Because when I talk cybersecurity, people sometimes think, well, is that software? Mm. Is that monitoring uh, bad actors? Is that Facebook trying to screen out, uh, you know, QAnon content from social media? Is that so what what exactly is that umbrella? Is it pretty wide? Or do you see it as very narrow and focused in terms of what cybersecurity, what the cluster might look like in Fredericton? Yeah. So look, you know, as, as I mentioned before, cybersecurity covers every attribute that you can think about our lives today. Um, what we've what we've focused on and, and, it's, and it's evolved because of the thought leadership. It didn't evolve because we said, well, let's go to look at one area and let's let's do desktop management or, you know, virus protection or whatever. You know, there's a hundred different areas of cybersecurity interest in itself. We decided that, you know, let's let's work on a sector of cybersecurity that we know is going to always be in demand because it's described often as critical infrastructure. So those things that keep us alive or those things that keep our economy moving, uh, the transportation network, the healthcare system, the education system, the financial system, all those things that come up at a more global level, not the desktop management, that, that's, that's an element of it. And there's an element of, you know, virus protection and spyware and all those things. There's lots of organizations taking care of that. And, you know, that's a, in some in some extent, that's a consumer product to, to some level. When you get when you bring yourself up to the network layer, when you bring yourself up to, you know, the layer that all corporations are attacked uh, are, are, are attached to, um, you bring yourself up to sort of that operating software level with inside any network. And look for the, or the strengths of cybersecurity in that. Then again, you, you're 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 staying into a very specific and very focused area. So we describe that as critical infrastructure protection. And I summarize that by those things that keep us as a population alive. Um, get the phone going off here. Turn it off. There, serve it down. Um, 
so so that's the area that 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 we want to focus on. That's the area that we've been building expertise in. And again, it builds on you know the infrastructure that's predominantly coming out of University of New Brunswick. You know, when you look at why Fredericton, um, you know, Fredericton has the has the fortunate position to have you know five you know I think we're at five online and and universities, physical universities. You know, we've got a number of research chairs. Uh, we have a number of of research institutes in in what I often describe as our innovation district or innovation quarter. We have more than sixty organizations that are involved in research. Um, you know, and you, when you look at a provincial level, there, there's somewhere around fifty percent of all of all research being done in the province happens here. About seventy five percent that happens in in the uh, in the academic institutions happens here in Frank. So those things all come together to say. You know, we have a we have a value proposition, but we also have, you know, a runway that we've already built, and that gives us the foundation to sort of um, look beyond. Again, the one plus one equaling three. You know, we've got assets here that we can double and triple and quadruple. So I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, about UNB and maybe NBCC, the community college, because one of the things that's bugged me over the years. Uh, is this idea that you should only be graduating enough people to meet the demand of the local labor market. And this has kind of been a mantra. Now, of course, universities are a bit different, but I don't understand why we don't make Fredericton and UNB in particular, and possibly NBCC, a hub for national training in cybersecurity. In other words, you massively overgraduate and you know, in the workforce, you use, you absorb as many as you can locally, but if they go across the country and beyond, fine, mm. because you've turned UNB into an ex- a center of excellence built around the research, but also the training and education. So I get your thoughts on that. Is that sort of the vision over there or are they, or are they not thinking about training in the same way that I am when it comes to cybersecurity? No, I think that 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 vision is changing and changing quite rapidly. You know, uh, the new president, um, Paul Mugerell, is bringing some really fresh ideas and thoughts into how the university can position. He's talking some bold items of doubling the research dollars and those things from the university. So he's squarely on that vision. Um, but it's also, you know, we've been working we've been working very hard collectively when i say we governments and private industry and and economic development firms have been working very hard to recognize that you know um remote work is is a is an investment as an investment attraction strategy that's going to replace chasing um, iconic names to be on buildings but bring their their divisions and 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 workload work people into this into this region. Take advantage of the education we've got in place, but also you know augment that with immigration or you know in growth with with uh, with skilled labor. Those would all be part of the narrative around, particularly the cybersecurity. Um, you know, if if we're going to achieve the you know the three to four thousand jobs in the next you know two to five years. Um, we can't do it on the output the university has today. We have to combine a number of job attraction plus educational components. Cyber NB, which was spun out of opportunities in Brunswick uh, and is now a, a standalone operating NGO, one of its pillars that it has is the educational element. Um, and some of the work they're doing, it goes right into the high school or actually into, into all levels of K-12. You know, with cyber titans and a, and a variety of things that they're doing, but really it is to start to prepare that 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 
the, the population base to look at cyber as as a career path coming out of out of high school. So I want I wanted to ask you about the federal government. So uh, maybe I've been reading too much Donald Savoie and Herb Emery lately, but I'm a little bit skeptical of the role the federal government has played in attracting national international investment into places like New Brunswick. So we don't see a lot of these big multinational firms coming here now in the case of cybersecurity. And of course with Radiant six and others through acquisition, yes, but we're not doing a ton to attract them. And I worry a little bit that it's because the federal government isn't, isn't playing as much a role, but I guess the question for you specifically to the feds is early on in the cybersecurity conversation back in 2015, 2016, there was the discussion of some sort of federal cybersecurity center uh, in Fredericton. So, you know, the federal government is a major player in the cybersecurity. I mean, and I'm not even just talking about the Department of Defense and CSIS, but just in all of its own security needs, right, in terms of managing its own networks, in terms of managing its own cybersecurity. So is that still on the table or where is the federal government uh, in this cyber cluster that we're talking about? So I'd say it's still on the table uh, in the in the in the broadest context of federals being involved. But look, um, for us to be successful in cybersecurity is not just about UMB and it's not just about Ignite uh, and it's not just about Fredericton. Right, uh, cybersecurity opportunities in Moncton and St. John and the remote working capabilities. A person can be employed anywhere in the world and be working on cybersecurity. So the groundwork that we have, the remote working capabilities, all those things sort of tie together. But, but it's not going to happen unless we have all of those components pulling together, as well as the province, the provincial government, and the federal government. And our challenge right now, and I sometimes describe it, you know, look, I'm, I'm first to criticize government, but I'm also the first to compliment them. Government has an essential role to play in cybersecurity. Um, and, and look, they, you know, their intention is all in the right place. Sometimes politics get in front of some of the conversations and gets in the way. Our job is to help point politicians in their way and help them understand when, when that becomes an issue versus let's look at the opportunity as for, for its merits. And I would argue that any economic development initiative that's worth doing is worth spanning across no matter what government is in place. But at this stage, we are we are in an unfortunate uh, position where we have in Fredericton we have local federal representative that's from the Green Party, you know we have a, a, a conservative provincial government, we have a liberal federal government, and and regardless of the individuals that are in that, regarding regardless of the initiatives that are being done, there's going to be barriers. And though by having that type of structure, there's barriers, and that bar- those barriers get in place by having things like cybersecurity become a coordinated attack or coordinated opportunity across all those organizations. The province of Brunswick has a critical role to play in cybersecurity. Um, and the province of Brunswick has stated that cybersecurity is one of its top three priorities, the other two being digital health and smart energy. And, and, and that's great. We're very thankful to have the work that's being done by OMB and CyberNB, but we really need a Frank McKenna era mindset around cybersecurity. We need the leadership uh, at all political levels within inside the province to, to focus on the cybersecurity initiative and talk about its advantage. Um, we on the side, so I'll, I'll move into the cyber building for a bit because I think that's where your question actually comes to sort of plain view. So cybersecurity building is a private interest, private corporation building. 
Knowledge Park is a for-profit private company. So it is a private initiative in itself by the very very nature of the building. So $37 million building, um, it's a level two security capable building, uh, but it's built with the resilience to stand operationally by itself for 96 hours. We didn't build a bit, we don't need a building to stand by itself for 96 hours for cybersecurity. We need that when the thought leadership that was happening at the province of New Brunswick recognized that at some point in time, the emergency major operations is going to be invoked, not because of a pandemic, not because of a fire or, or a flood. It's going to be invoked because we are going to lose an essential system and it's going to be a cyber attack of some sort. So the thought leadership that I referred to earlier in cybersecurity was recognized by OMB and CyberNB and brought EMO into the equation of the cyber story. And that's when we fundamentally shifted ourselves from a critical infrastructure sort of strategy to one that had teeth in it. Had you know, Our own government was demonstrating the investment that was being made. And instead of it just being a straight line expense item to cover emergency operations, it turned itself into an economic development leverage. Even though it was an expense item for the province, the emergency major operations keep us safe and alive, it, it was going to double up as an economic development opportunity because no jurisdiction was doing that around the world. And that became a thought leadership and it, it gave us a number one stance when we were in Ottawa. We're starting to lose all of that because that part of the equation is not moving forward as quickly as it should. So it is a private interest investment, but we, we brought in the province to this because it gave the province the opportunity to evolve its emergency measure operations at the same time, use it as an economic development issue. So then when I talk about the, the federal side, there's, there's the Fed, you know, even, you know, I think probably four years ago, maybe three years ago, the announcement you were talking about was the feds indicated that they would put a militarized response to cybersecurity and, and a reaction team in CFB Gagetown to work with inside the cyber building and work with inside the cyber agenda. And that was the first acclamation that the feds said, look, we're going to, going to sort of invest. Since then, as the, the land has changed, we've, you know, not only have we have had COVID, but, you know, a number of elections have happened and, and things have changed because the cyber agenda is actually spanning four years now. So at the federal level, you know, over the last, I think, four or five budgets, there's been somewhere around a billion dollars has been identified uh, to, to support cybersecurity programs. Only $3 million of that has, has come to New Brunswick, even though in Canada today, we have the single largest capital program for cybersecurity in the cyber center. So no matter what industry you evaluate it on, when those characteristics are in place, typically they, they become aligned and they get engaged behind it. So we're, what we need to, as a region, is to have both the provincial government and the federal government aligned around their investments on cybersecurity so that we can continue to be that number one jurisdiction and we can grow those jobs to the 3,500 range we're forecasting. And the business yeah. supports that. Yeah, so I think just for the listener's view. So when you talk about the cyber building, you're talking about a specially designed building that has infrastructure to support organizations such as the emergency management organization or highly secure federal type facilities. That's correct. That's correct. Absolutely. Okay. And you're looking for government to be an anchor in that, that will ultimately also attract private sector investment. Well, no, I, I mean, 
short answer would be yes, but I wouldn't describe it quite that way. Government is an anchor only because they're making the investment in cybersecurity as a strategy. And to do that, their their physical uh, aspiration of that is to put EMO inside, which was always has been the business plan. It's not it shouldn't be dependent upon whether it's corporate led or business led. The strategy needs both elements. And it doesn't really matter which one comes first, whether it's government investment or private investment. In our case, private investment was number one. Knowledge Park brought seven million dollars of equity into the infrastructure. You can't have any more private investment than putting $7 million in a, in a building. And we also have already other private companies that are in the building. Now, they have, have they signed leases? Not yet because they're working with their own partnerships, but they're, they're doing their space design. They will be in the building. You know, Siemens has announced that this is their number one strategy. Siemens took what was originally an energy strategy and global development for smart energy. They saw the value proposition, what we're doing. They said, well, we want to make this our number one cybersecurity development location as well. And they didn't say, well, government's got to invest before private companies invest or private companies got to invest before government. They all need to happen, but necessarily they don't need to be in sequen sequential steps. They, they just need to happen. And that's the, sort of the, the roadblock that we're, we're experiencing right now. And as time goes on, I'm worried that we will lose this opportunity. You know, we, things like uh, small nuclear reactors, great opportunities. Um, not and it shouldn't be one versus the other because there are two different timelines. Small nuclear reactors, even if we make a hundred million dollars investment, we're not going to see the economic development output to that for at least ten years. Cybersecurity is here now. We we can do cybersecurity and at the same time still do nuclear reactors. We don't have to put one ahead of the other. Yeah, so I think that's that's where my concern comes in. So I, a lot of federal government employees listen to this podcast, a lot of ACOA employees really appreciate them uh, and also appreciate the role of ACOA absolutely in our region. But I do think when we're looking at sort of big scale development opportunities, whether it's cyber or SMR, I think um, I'd like to see the federal government play a little more direct role. So they are going to spend probably billions of dollars of taxpayer dollars to electrify the auto manufacturing sector in Ontario. They just announced in the last couple of weeks, 300 plus million for one uh, factory. Uh, we know they've announced hundreds of millions to support the offshore oil industry in Newfoundland and Labrador, and that's great. We know the ocean super cluster is going to lead to hundreds of millions of investment, mostly in Nova Scotia. We're hoping some of that will accrue here. But when we come along with something that we think is really good, which is cybersecurity, I think your point is well taken that they should say, OK, if that's your priority province and you've listed it as your top three, uh, we'll play ball. We'll, not only will we put our own some of our own cybersecurity pieces uh, in the cluster, we'll also support it financially and we'll also help you attract, you know, big scale multinational firms like Siemens. Because, again, you know, we know what the priority of Southern Ontario is going to be. We know what the priority of many other provinces are going to be. Uh, and I think the priorities of New Brunswick are starting to come into view. And I worry, for example, with this new um, federal investment in getting uh, Hydro-Quebec power into New Brunswick and into Nova Scotia, uh, you know, if the Fed say, well, that's where we're going to put our hundreds of millions, I think Larry Shaw would probably step up and say, well, hey, if we wanted to Quebec Hydro, we, we should have sold to them 10 years ago and eliminated our debt. So I don't want to I don't want to be on a soapbox here, uh, but I don't think that I think that hundreds and hundreds of millions of federal dollars to put electricity into the Maritimes from Quebec is more about Quebec 
than it is about the Maritimes. And I'd like to see the feds step up and support our cluster. So I don't know if you want to respond to that or just let it stand as a sort of float out there in the universe. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely want to respond to it because um, you, you, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, and it, it isn't about hand out and, you know, and it's not about hand up. It's about where are you, do you do strategic investments and for what reason? So when you're in the value proposition that we have, right, we are the number one jurisdiction in Canada that has the leadership, thought, thought-provoking leadership in cybersecurity, the very first research chair in the country, the very first research institute in the country, already one of the largest exits in, in the country over the last number of years in the IT space is here in Fredericton in cybersecurity. We've got about 750 jobs in the cybersecurity space today. We got a forecast that looks at about 3,500 jobs over the next, let's say, five years. Um, you've got a, a private company called Knowledge Park that's put $7 million in the ground, built a $37 million complex, focused at a very specific, not the world in its entirety for, from relatives to cyber, focused on critical infrastructure, those things that the feds play in very well. You've got four or five years of budget al- allocation federally for about a billion dollars, of which they've spent around 365 of a million, and only $3 million has come to New Brunswick. You're damn right. I'm going to stand up on a pretty big stage and try to help them understand where they've made errors in their investments. Because, you know, when you look at jurisdictions that have got 35 and 45 and $50 million of investment in cybersecurity without even having remotely close to what we have in place today, then you can't get on the same page as to why is the feds not behind this project in a meaningful, very large way. And I think the province in itself has to take a more aggressive point of view with the feds to say, this is not only our number one strategy or number one of our top three, but get behind it in a very aggressive way to move it forward. Because what the reality is going to be is we're going to lose this opportunity if we wait another few months because no other jurisdiction is waiting for us to get our act together. Okay, so that's our little uh, soapbox moment, Larry, and uh, we are agreed on that. I, I, I think uh, hopefully to our federal government partners that are listening, uh, big fans of what you do, but we want uh, a little bit more focus here on cyber. I wanted to completely change uh, gears a bit here uh, and talk about COVID-19. Uh, obviously, that put a monkey wrench in a lot of plans uh, for a lot of jurisdictions across Canada, including uh, Fredericton. Uh, the first thing I would ask you about is immigration. Of course, as you know, in recent years, Fredericton has led the province in terms of the number of immigrants attracted. Um, I think the Moncton folks would say in the last year they passed Fredericton in terms of an absolute number. But again, adjusted for population size, Fredericton still attracts the most. But I took a look the other day at the numbers through July of this year and Fredericton has had a big as as has has the rest of the province but a, a steep decline in the number of permanent residents admitted this year mm-hmm. um are you where where are you with immigration do you think we need to keep the pedal to the metal there or do you think because of covid we should sort of back off or 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 what's the Fredericton or ignite mm-hmm. Fredericton position on immigration yeah so look immigration is one of our well it is the top uh, top strategy with inside of our population growth strategy so we treat it we, we the whole immigration thing is a bit different here and i guess we do things different maybe but uh you know kudos to moncton what they're doing awesome work and st john's you know ramping up in some of the things they're doing as well in the province you know is trying to support you know the the more rural areas on immigration 
Um, I don't think there's any debate that that immigration has to be a critical component to our population growth. And I think if we if we wanted to water all of our economic development hardship down, it comes down to we just need more people. We have a population that, you know, we should be a province that probably twice the population that we have now, at, at least as a bare minimum. So immigration is going to play a critical role for our population growth strategy. Fredericton specifically has a forecast of 25,000 people increase over the next 20 or 25 years. Uh, and immigration is one of the keys to that. But you can't just work only in immigration. You have to also have a repatriation strategy. So those those that have gone away from their home province in New Brunswick, we need to bring them home. And those that are here, we need to find ways to keep them, right? So the retention. So we describe our population as immigration, retention, and, and repatriation. We work with sort of those, those three approaches. Um, we've gone ahead and as much like as Moncton have done, we've done our strategic plan. Our strategic plan has recognized the assets that we have and the players. Um, but I think, you know, what we do well in Fredericton is the collaboration. So we, we spent a lot of time over the last couple of years making sure that the leaders in the, in the space weren't duplicating and weren't providing redundancy in the, in the, in the marketplace. Um, so the strategic plan that we've formulated uh, align the resources around the Multicultural Association, the Chamber and its advocacy of immigration population growth, and then Ignite from the strategic um, sort of attraction layer of, of immigration. Um, we've, we've dedicated a resource uh, to attraction, not only exclusively to immigration attraction, but attraction in, 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 in the broadest context. Um, that individual, Nasheen uh, Ali, works on, on retention and repatriation programs as much as she does on, on immigration. International students is a top priority, but it's a top priority for any, any jurisdiction in immigration. Uh, when you've got the, the luxury of having someone in country for four years, you, you better have a plan to expose them to as many business opportunities that you can. Um, so when you look at things like us expanding Planet Hatch to a downtown location, um, Planet Hatch expanding into the university uh, presence. Those are just conduits for us to make, make make stronger relationships with the international students or students in general. Any graduating student, uh, whether you're an immigrant or just a, from another province or from your own province, we want to retain all of those. So we have pretty specific and aggressive strategies uh, around the, the international or, or the um, academic or the university crowd. The other thing that we do is we... We try to influence government and we try to focus on attraction from those jurisdictions that we feel are more likely to succeed in our region. So look, you know, if you're from Shanghai, it's gonna be difficult for you to feel comfortable in Fredericton because of the size of the city. Um, you know, the, the, the characteristics that we represent. So we think we're gonna be better off by serve by attracting into more jurisdictions of our size uh, or at least the attributes that we have. I think that's one of the keys Key that we're looking at to make sure our retention, but you know we we also need to work very hard at those newcomers that are here, helping them get a job, help them helping their spouses get a job, helping them integrate into the community. You know something as simple as you know the new airport that we're building have a greeting center for for immigrants as they as they land in the first the first thing they see of our city when they arrive here needs to be what we describe as our primary. Um, uh, attraction program is we speak welcome, right? So um, that's an easy thing to do. It's a lot harder to actually demonstrate. 
Um, we, we use our local immigration partnership council as the way to do that. Um, we've got a number of subcommittees with inside the, what we refer to as the LIP, a uh, number of subcommittees, you know, tackling everything from, you know, a safe environment to, you know, to uh, uh, employment, um, you know, daycare, uh, uh, you know, youth interaction, all of those things have to be moved. And, you know, I sometimes plagiarize Kennedy in the sense that, and immigration is a good example of that. You you know you have to focus on the tide and lift all ships in the harbor. Um, you can't leave. You can't just get in uh, help immigrants feel good about the city that they're in uh, from maybe you know just a lifestyle. They got to feel good about you know they're, 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 that they're wanted here, that, that they're they're safe here. And and you know some of these individuals come to us from jurisdictions that we can't even imagine what that's like. So they're not going to come predisposed to trust everyone. You have to work very hard. Um, and having them understand that you're coming from a meaningful place and, and that, that trust is a foundation of what we want them to believe in in our community. Okay, okay but you didn't answer the question. So, I I mean, I, no, I think that's an important overview of what you're doing. But, you know, you're down 60% in 2020. Are, are you worried that this is going to extend out? Or do you think that, you know, this will bounce back in 2021 and 2022? Because I think Fredericton, like the rest of the province, if you went an extended period of time without immigration, it would impact your economic development. Oh, there's no question. It, it, we have it has to turn around. Now, COVID is is the is the is the reason for it. I mean, when you have international travel restricted in the way that it is, you know, it's hard to do attraction. It's hard to bring people here. I think the last number I saw was somewhere around 450 or so for this year. That's I mean, that's you know, I would even argue that maybe that's impressive con- considering you know we've had our borders technically closed for you know six and a half months or so. Um, and COVID is nowhere as near to being resolved. It will, we will take a hit significantly on COVID on our numbers. Um, but I'm, I'm really confident that they will return once we, once we solve the COVID issue with the vaccine and once travel is, is more, is more easy. The feds have, have messaged us on a number of occasions. They're still keeping their channels open. They're still trying to work as best they can in this remote sort of component. Um, so I think, you know, it's it, it will return, but I, I'm sure we're we haven't seen the bottom of COVID yet. I mean, look at where we're at now. We're at higher numbers than we were in phase one of of uh, the infection of, of our population. So, um, you know, I I'd expect we are going to be at least a couple of years before this sort of works itself out. Yeah, and I was very happy that the feds announced uh, the attraction of international students, right? You have to have a, a, a quarantine period and so on, but at least they're letting them come in now because it's such a huge part of the economy, but also the talent pipeline as well. So Absolutely. not only do they spend money when they're here, they're also good, a good pool of talent for, for the future. So that's great. So I wanted to ask you, just as we start to get near the end here, I want to ask you how the pandemic is impacting your business. So not how it's impacting the Fredericton economy, although that's an important subject, but I'm for for our audience here, I'm I'm curious how it's impacting how you do economic development at, at Ignite, uh, at Planet Hatch, cybersecurity. How do you do cluster development? How do you do client support? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you incubate companies in an era where you've got uh, a pandemic looming and you've got sanitation and 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 uh, social distancing and all of these things sort of whirling around? So how how is it impacting economic development? Uh, 
as practice by Ignite? Yeah, look, it's it's there's no question. It's a it's a it's a major impact. Um, and I think you know, right up front, all organizations like ourselves need to recognize, um, you know, our our success factors are not going to be as as high as they have been the last couple of years, um, particularly in the next year or two going forward. Immigration is not going to reach its numbers. We're not going to be at the numbers we are for startup companies and job creation. All of those things will have some some negative impact. We still would be positive on those numbers. I mean, we're still you know we're still working on investment traction. There are still opportunities, particularly in the cybersecurity. We've got a couple of companies that are going to go forward and put operations in the new building that are investment attraction wins. Um, but it, it's going to have an impact. I think the. The, we are probably an example of what we try to preach in that we've transitioned to a virtual world um, quite easily. Uh, all of our programming that we do, we now deliver, we deliver virtually. Um, you know, we operate the, the organization itself, uh, you know, virtually as well. We do have people in the office now, but a lot of people still working from home. Um, technology has been deployed where it wasn't put in place, such as Teams and video conferencing and all of those things. Um, so we took advantage or taking advantage of sort of what we preach and, and do that. Um, so it just at a, at a workload capacity, we got uh, we got more work than we would have had. It's just different work. Well, on the economic development strategies, we're, we're pivoting on a few things around. So investment attraction is not going to be where we spend a lot of our time in the in the in the very pragmatic description of what it used to be, you know. Um, some of that was jump on planes, go visit companies and other areas and help them, um, you know, live and dream and, and kick tires here. So we got to do, we got to in, inject virtual capabilities. So, um, you know, look at technology, some of the, some of the real estate technology, you know, you can walk through a home and, and see what it looks like, but we're going to deploy and we're actually deploying some of those. But, you know, the investment attraction in the short term is going to be more about the remote access or remote workers. So whether you're an individual um, and look, if you look at Siemens, Siemens have given their worldwide uh, employment base the opportunity to choose wherever they want to work from and they will try to accommodate that. And, you know, they're doing it as a temporary arrangement, but, you know, things like that will turn into long-term solutions. If you were in downtown New York trying to get your development team into the building, you're having a lot of difficulties to do that. And what you're really trying to do is get the resources that you need on the projects that you're working on. Well, you can do that remote and you don't have to necessarily go through the investment attraction elements of setting up a company and all those things, you know, bricks and mortar and all that stuff that comes with the traditional IA play. Um, and, and that, But yet the same result could happen. You've got the jobs that are being created here. You've also got the ability for workers that do have the luxury of remote work today uh, to be transitioned to New Brunswick. So bring your work and bring and, and come live in our jurisdiction. So the fact that we've done as well as we have have done in COVID becomes an actual value proposition or an additional value proposition that we have from the investment traction side. So, so there is an example of how we pivoted away from the old IA play to what the new IA play looks like. But nonetheless, you know, COVID is a, is, is a, it's a beast to deal with, right? Um, you know, I uh, guess when you think you got it wrestled into a corner, then you're all of a sudden back to where you were six months ago. Um, and we've got a number of, number of months of that to play through. The other thing that, that we're doing is, so I, there, I could go back and source all the, all the research on this, but um, just, in, uh, you know, sort of anecdotally from what we've seen, what I've seen since we've merged Knowledge Park and Ignite together, is we got to recognize 
really what is the foundation of our economy. And the, the foundation of our economy is that small, that SME marketplace, that small medium enterprise marketplace, the two person team, the five person team, the 10 person team. And what we've done, we've tried to make sure that as many of our services are, are focused on, on the smaller elements of our business as well. We described ourselves as not sector focused necessarily. Uh, we work from a, whether it's programming or startups, we work with all sectors. And if you look at the results of Planet Hat, somewhere around 230, 240 companies have been helped to be supported and started from not from Planet Hat over over its life. A high high percentage of those are not IT firms, not IT gazelle sort of focused high growth. Very important to stay focused on that, but as well at the same time, all of those skills and learning and and programs that you've developed to help the high growth companies, there's elements of that can, that can be deployed on a local company. If we can just help one one company be a little better on social media, be a little better e-marketing, and hire that one extra person, we do that across the 3,000 or 4,000 companies that are in our region. Um, you know that's a pretty significant increase. We're going to get the pullback or the pull through of the economy starting to change around. We're seeing some of that now. You know, some of the businesses that were completely shut down now have half their staff back and things like that. We're trying not to, those we don't count as economic development. Um, you know, those are just replacing jobs that we've lost. But we are very much focused on supporting that as well. So that's great. So I have one more question for you before we wrap up today. Um, a lot of conversation out there about whether or not COVID-19 has fundamentally changed anything. Um, even pre-COVID-19, there were a lot of experts suggesting that New Brunswick's outlook was pretty weak, a long-term outlook from some of the banks of, you know, well below 1% per year GDP growth. I, I'd like to get, you're on the front lines, you're on the ground in Fredericton, you understand what's going on in the economy. What's your outlook? for Fredericton, but also for New Brunswick. Are you optimistic these days or are you more pessimistic based on everything that you see? And we'll, I think we'll, we'll end on that note. Good. Well, I, and appreciate to be here on, on your uh, podcast. Uh, I, I do admire the work you, you guys have been doing. It's uh, um, you know, it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's needed. It's important. Um, so the work you do is, is adding value to, to us that, that listen and, and look and, and seek advice. COVID, I hope I, I'm a, so it's optimistic for me. Um, I think COVID has has more quickly opened our eyes to what we all sort of maybe intuitively knew was going to happen. Um, you know, the negative COVID is there. I don't mean to underplay that. And don't mean to dismiss that. You know, it's a it's a brutal uh, upset to our lives and and catastrophic individually to those that have had to live through that. Um, but there, I, I don't believe COVID uh, is going to be. Uh, a nail in our coffin. It's actually going to be the shining light that that we sort of can reflect back on a number of years from now and say that this was one of those sensational emotional events that got everybody behind uh, a movement of change. When you look at very early in, uh, we, I forget the percentage, but a significant amount of, of doctor visits were moved online. How long have we been trying to do e-education e or e-technology plays in healthcare and things like that? And yet we could do it over a matter of days when there was a, something driving us for that. So there are a number of those examples that I think also paint the picture of where the opportunity lies for us. Um, you know, yes, our workforce is going to change. Our lives are going to be completely different, you know, as the way we do work and the, in the environment that we're in. 
um, not just only because of COVID, but look, look moving forward. I think we all need to realize that some of the skill sets that the new generation is going to have to have is is different than, you know, the generation that that I come from and, you know, the production line and all the productivity improvements, collaboration, you know, and uh, problem solving. You know, we, we've launched a whole new uh, uh, series of programs and services around the future of work, helping, you know, prepare the, you know, the, the next generation for the work that they're going to be experiencing. So COVID is going to give us that shining light, the capability of recognizing how we, how we can transition our work. Look at Look at the corner store that all of a sudden start home delivery. You know, they would have thought that was cost prohibitive before. Well, maybe it isn't as profitable as an in-store delivery, but it's allowing you to evolve your business. It's allowing you to stay relevant to your community and keep your keep employees or keep you as, as owner employed. Um, so so COVID is, is enabling that. So COVID is the driving factor for that. Um, I think, you know, if when it looks, when we look at a region, that when I look at the Freddie region, um, you know, we, we are fortunate to have what we have from uh, an R&D, from academic investment. Um, we're, we're fortunate to be, you know, sort of a, uh, you know, the capital of a city. There are certain attributes, access to people and things like that, that, that comes about. Uh, and we're, we're quite fortunate to, you know, to have the foundation that's been established over a number of years, particularly here in Fredericton around, around the, you know, the innovation agenda. So I think when you look at when you look at COVID as being a catalyst for change, when you look at the technologies that are coming that are coming through today, the the investment in you know the automation layer. When you look at um, you know when you look at things like cybersecurity and you know if you can get the resources tied to that and, and aligned to that, then I think we have an extremely bright future, not just in Fredericton but in New Brunswick as a whole. Um, the last thing I would worry about in New Brunswick um, is is our ability to meet sort of the, the challenges that, that we all face. Larry Shaw, CEO of Ignite Fredericton, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Growing Pains with David Campbell is produced by me, Matt George, is engineered by the great Zachary Peltier, and is part of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network.